There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. We're talking to leading figures about how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they have become. Our guest today is the former leader of the Scottish Conservatives, who led her party to an extraordinary revival north of the border. She grew up playing football in a Fife village, went to a comprehensive, joined the Territorial Army while working for the BBC, was a Sunday school teacher and is married to her partner, Jen Wilson, with a young child, Finn. The dog-walking, diet-coke-drinking Ruth Davidson was seen as the Tory party's great hope before she ruled herself out of the national leadership in 2018 and stood down as leader of the Scottish Tories last year. We spoke to her by Skype from Rachel's home. So we thought we'd start a bit about lockdown and just what it's been like having a small child running around with you. Yeah, I mean, do you know, I think what's going to be funny for people when they look back on this period of lockdown is that we all had this uh, huge global experience and everybody's individual experience was so different. So my experience and my partner, we've both been working full time. We've had an 18 month old running around uh, in the house full time. So we've had to kind of pass him before like between us so we're exhausted and yet we've got friends who have either been furloughed or who are single and don't have kids and they're trying to fight isolation they're trying to fight loneliness they're all of these different things so the the difference is massive even though it's the same kind of experience it's yeah. it's really really odd and we wanted to go back to your childhood because it must have been quite different to Finn's can you just describe what it was like yeah sure so um my parents um both grew up on, on council estates in Glasgow and moved out of Glasgow before they had me and my sister. So I was born in the Scottish borders. My dad worked in the textile mills down there before they shot uh, and then they shot. And when I was about five, we moved up to Fife. So we lived in a small village. Um, my, my primary school was, was in the village. That was fine. The, the high school that I went to took in a really large catchment area and that took in uh, a, a lot of what we would... Um, we, we at the time described as, as kind of disadvantaged area, but it, you would call it now an area of multiple um, indices of deprivation. So it was it was kind of post-industrial. There was lots of docklands that didn't have much work on it, uh, lots of pit towns that had shot the pits. So um, high levels of unemployment and, and sometimes multi-generational unemployment, high levels of, of drug use and abuse. Um, so, so yeah, so high school was a bit more challenging. Uh, in terms of primary school, um just at the point that I was starting in my, my new primary one when I moved up, um, I was run over by a truck outside my house uh, during the summer holidays and I ended up in hospital for, for quite some time. So I broke my leg, my pelvis, uh, I crushed my femoral artery, the main artery in your leg, um, I severed the nerve down the, the front of, of one of my legs um, and I had lots and lots of operations and, and it took me a really long time to get back up on my feet again. Can you remember the actual day it happened still? It's funny, I remember sort of vignettes. So I remember 
lying on the tarmac and I remember the sensation of a, a blanket being put over me. Um, I, I sort of later learned there was a, a GP that lived across the road from us and, and, and they'd come out and, and sort of tried to help while they were waiting on the ambulance. I remember waking up in the ambulance and, and looking, because your head's at the kind of driver end, uh, and looking down at the far end and my mum my was in the jump seat and she looked about 104. She looked dreadful. I'd, so I'd, I'd, I'd kind of flickered awake and saw her and then flickered back to sleep. And then I was moved a lot from hospital to hospital. So I was taken to the nearest A&E, which was in a, a town called Kirkcaldy, about 12 miles away, um, where they sort of stabilised me. And then I got moved to one of the, the big um, hospitals in Edinburgh. Um, and then they realised that what they needed to try to do to me was so specialist that they had to move me to the specific children's hospital uh, to get the vascular surgery done there and then the, the, the reconstruction there. So they tried out a new type of leg setting on me. So while I was in hospital for a while, they would like roll me out in front of um, lecture theatres, like the old fashioned ones where they go up the side, the yeah. kind of medical theatres. Yeah, it was terrifying for a five year old, absolutely terrifying. Um, but yeah, so they would use me as a, a teaching tool for a bit as well. So it was it was quite odd. So but did they think you uh, might die at any stage? I mean, was it, it must have been really traumatizing for your parents to watch you, particularly straight outside your house. I, I think my parents were told it was about fifty fifty. Right. Firstly, they had to save the kind of life, and and then the next stage was trying to save the leg because I was so young. Right. Um, and and that's what they tried to do. So the. The vascular reconstruction took about, I think that was about an eight or nine hour operation. Um, the whole lower half of my body had turned black by this point. So it was trying to kind of keep everything going. They didn't know what sort of internal damage would be there. Um, so, so yeah, that was quite tough. There was also quite a lot of internal scarring and, and other things as well. Like because I've been dragged along the tarmac, I've got some fantastic scars uh, around my ankles from my ankle bones popped out the side because this, all oh of the skin goodness. had been taken away, like these discs. Uh, and, and as you grow, like your skin moves in different ways. So they're now no longer over my ankles, those scars, which is quite interesting. Uh, um, and yeah, my parents were also told that they didn't know if I'd be able to have kids when I was older and that sort of thing, whether I would start periods because there was lots of internal issues that had happened. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I did a proper number on myself. And, and did the trucker ever, I mean, did you ever meet the man who did it or not? Was there ever a sense of closure at all? No, I, I never did. But I mean, it really wasn't his fault. <laughs> it was uh, my sister. I'd been sent across the road. My mum had walked me across the road to pick my sister up, who was... Uh, practicing stilt walking for the local children's gala uh, to come back over the road for a lunch with a, a neighbour. And uh, we were crossing the road outside of my house and there were some parked cars up out there. Actually, there was a parked removals van. So it was very large. And we'd, we'd done all of the things that you're supposed to do, which was we'd like, looked on one side, we'd gone around the back, we'd looked on the other. My sister is four years older than me and is very responsible and is now a doctor, probably out of guilt. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Um, we'd done all of the things that you were supposed to do and um, it just like he just must have swung out of a side road or something in the time it took for us to go from one side of the van to the other to come back out and um, he swerved to hit my he, he swerved and missed my sister and hit me because I kept walking and she stopped walking so completely not the guy's fault he was very shaken um, he sort of got out of his cab and vomited everywhere as soon as he saw oh me. Oh, my goodness. Um, so I never met him again, but I met my ambulance driver again. Um, Fife's quite a small county, and uh, I, I ran into him years later when I was running around. So so I think he was quite happy that the, the pavement jam he'd scraped off the, off the highway uh, turned into a, a little girl that could still run around. So, so that was nice. So did you get teased? A little bit. I mean, I think it was more... 
it, it wasn't really teasing, but it was more kind of, ooh, what's that? Kind of at the scars yeah. and stuff like that. And my mum tried to make the scars uh, sort of more fun for me because obviously they were going to be with me forever. So uh, the way in which they reset the right femur is I, I'd had um, pins coming out the side of them like a mechano set so my right leg I've got a, a sort of 13 14 inch scar down the inside of my right thigh I'm split completely from crotch to knee uh, which is where the 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 vein was was reconstructed where they'd taken blood vessels from other parts of my body and tried to sort of stitch them together um so I've got a, a very long one there which we called I think we called it my worm I can't remember the name of that and then <laughs> the ones on the outside I've got three on the outside of my right thigh I've got three uh, scars with holes in them, so I've got indentations in my leg with the with a slit scar that goes across them, which is where the 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 metal rods were put in with the traction sets attached to them. Um, and we called them my maggots as well. But <laughs> one thing that was great about that was um, be- because the indentations are there, um, I could always tell my left from my right because I just put my hands down and I could feel on my thighs. <laughs> uh, so I never ever got confused between my left and my right growing up, which is quite helpful. You don't like a very girly girl though do you that's I think it's quite lucky in some ways probably that you didn't want to wear sort of frilly skirts and dresses I like you know I I like a ball gown a ball gown sounds a bit fancy but like I liked when I was at uni I I did like frocking up so I liked doing the odd black tie event and things like that I like um when it comes to clothes I, I like things where I know what they're supposed to be because I'm not very fashionable I don't know how to fit in so I like school uniforms army uniforms suits that you wear to work because you just buy a suit and then put a top underneath it and it's suit uh, or black tie because I know what that is mm. the thing that strikes fear into my heart is smart casual or cocktail because <laughs> uh, I've made the mistake of thinking that a cocktail like a cocktail dress in Scotland it turns out is different to what cocktail dress is if you for example go to the Tory London black and white ball for the first time and you look right. like somebody's country cousin and you feel completely out of place <laughs> so um so when it comes to clothes uh, <laughs> I like it when I know what it is. So I don't, I don't mind. I don't mind wearing long dresses. I'm not a. I've never been a fan of um, short skirts. So, but I, I, I am a little bit self. I have been a little bit self conscious about my scars in the past. But also, you did things like you joined the football team, didn't you? You didn't stop doing physical activity. You were absolutely determined to to be as physical as you could and as you'd always been. Do you know? I have to say, looking back on it, fair play to my parents for not wrapping me up in cotton wool after something like that. I mean, how hard it must have been for them to to watch me play football with the big boys. And yeah, I mean, I I did. I, I've always loved football. My dad, um, at one point, was a professional footballer, uh, and um, one of my proudest achievements is still all of these years later is I was still the first girl ever to play for Largo Boys under 14s FC. So, um, you know, forget the politics. That is a real achievement. And your parents sound amazing. Were they really helpful through the whole thing? Did you feel that you were incredibly nurtured and looked after? Yeah, I mean, it was... I mean, it's only now, as an adult, that I can see how hard it would have been for for them, Um, especially when they just moved to a a new place where they didn't have a, a friend and family network around them at all. So it must have been really tough for them. But when I was first released from hospital, I was released in a full body cast. So I was in um, sort of the Plaster of Paris stuff from underneath my armpits down to my toes on my right leg and down to my knee on my left leg. So I was I was like I was flat like a board and I'd been in for whatever reason, I'd been in the local paper because um, not much news happened in Fife, I don't think. Somebody had seen it uh, that worked in a, a ambulance museum 
up the coast uh, and brought down a World War One spinal carriage. So what they used to, that had all been reconditioned and stuff, it had been painted and varnished and stuff. And it was what you used to, for, for men in, in the trenches that got pulled back off the lines who had broken backs or were paralysed or whatever. It was kind of like man prams, basically, where you would lie folk down. Uh, and they lent it to my mum so she could take me out for some fresh air for the weeks that I was in this full body cast, which was so kind of them. So I've got a kind of clipping from our local paper because they put the picture of my mum pushing the spinal carriage with me in it, this little white face sort of <laughs> overtopping the side. Uh, on the front page of the, was the picture story and uh, she was raging because the young lad who uh, was like this cub reporter that had been sent out to do this had promised her that it was okay that she was wearing her fluffy slippers because it wouldn't be <laughs> on the picture and it was and she's absolutely still black affronted to this day. But how did they get the body cast off you? Uh, it's a circular saw. That must be terrifying. It is absolutely terrifying. I was, I, I mean, I would like to pretend that I was debonair and brave about it. I was not. I was screaming the place down. And you know that feeling where you have a plaster that's been on an open wound for, for a while and you you have that hypersensitivity when you take the plaster off? If you can imagine that for the whole lower half of your body, it was, it was yeah. I mean, somebody taking a circular saw to a very sore part of your body that's been mangled for the last three months. It's, it's not great. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. And also, I mean, I'd withered quite a lot inside of it. So I think I was, I mean, I, my legs still aren't the same shape and they never will be. Um, but uh, they, I think I was something like, by the time I came off, I think I was six. And I think I was only about three and a half or four stone or something like that. I was, I was really, I was really pretty withered underneath. So you had to do all of the kind of physio and sort of hydrotherapy and all that sort of stuff to try and just all these muscles had atrophied and, and, you know, just try and like you literally, I literally had to start learning to walk from scratch. when you were 25 the same thing happened again you had another really traumatic incident didn't you when you were in the territorial army so not exactly the same but this one was also kind of my fault and no one else was really to blame for it so I, I wasn't the TA I was doing my my the way in which it works is you do all the same exams to become a territorial army officer as you, you do to be a regular army officer you just don't spend a year at Sandhurst first you do your training off campus and to make sure you're not wasting anybody's time, you've got a weekend of like pre-tests before you go for like a, a three-week intensive course at Sandhurst with all of the, the real tests in them. So I was down in uh, Westbury in Wiltshire doing my kind of pre-tests. Uh, and one of the things you've got to do is something called, a, I think it's called a physical courage test, where you've got to run full pelt at this window frame and jump headfirst through it. You've got to take off before a certain line and land on the other side of, of another line. And I was doing my, my, my TCB in uh, February, and it'd been snowing overnight and our little group was there and they were kind of like, right, who's first up? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll get it over with, no bother. Sort of the bold Davidson, who cares? Not realising that they hadn't broken up the kind of sand pit on the other side, so it was like landing on concrete. So I I flew through it, over-rotated, oh. landed on the top of my, uh, where, where the neck agony. is your spine and uh, sort of broke three vertebrae. But I, 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 I didn't, obviously I didn't know that's what I'd done at the time. I thought I just winded myself. So I was, I was trying to get up, trying to get up. And um, it, it was a bit of a bad one, actually, because for whatever reason, they didn't have a qualified medic on site at the time. 
So the closest thing they had was he had this enormous half colonel who was a psychologist who was doing the psych part of the evaluation. And he looked and sounded like James Earl Jones. <laughs> uh, and they, they, they pulled him out because I, I, like, I, I must have been in this on the ground for, you know, like 10 minutes or something like literally unable to get up unable to get up brought this that brought this guy out and i will never forget it It was hilarious he was like right so like let me lift this leg can you feel this can you feel this let me bend this knee can you feel this uh, and he said to me are you sure number is this sore I was like yeah that's sore yeah that's sore it's like are you sure number 33 or are you just anticipating <laughs> the pain? and do you know that way where you're like you you kind of question yourself and you're kind of like well maybe I'm a big girl's blouse maybe I'm a total woose and they got me on my feet and made me walk to the ambulance no at which point the ambulance guys and and when I got taken to the hospital were unchuffed I think it's fair to say and I was put uh, flat on my back for seven days I was putting like this back brace and stuff like that Uh, it took three people to log roll me to allow me to go to the toilet and stuff like that like it it was really good like it was really bad that they'd made me walk yeah Uh, (laughs) So, uh, so yeah, so then I got released and I had, I had this brace on for, I think it was three or four months. I had to wear it, this plastic and metal contraption, uh, which was interesting because it turns out there are a lot of men that like the idea of women with handles. Like, it's really <laughs> odd. It's the nichest thing ever. But, you know, I've never been the prettiest girl in class. I'd like to think I've got a bit of chat about me. But, you know, I was, I was, I think I was 25 at this time. So I had loads of pals, birthday parties and stuff. And I was of the opinion that nothing should stop me. So I would still, I wasn't allowed, because of the painkillers and all the stuff I was on, I wasn't allowed to drink or anything. But I'd still go out for a mate's birthday in this contraption over whatever my party clothes were. Uh, and I'd be in a nightclub or whatever. And I got so much more attention than I did when I didn't have it. Is that because they thought you were fragile, do you think? I have no idea what it was, but it's just odd. And they were all, they all had a certain oddness about them. Do you know what I mean? It, it wasn't David Gandhi or Brad Pitt that was coming over to say hello. <laughs> it was men whose sort of secret internet history you wouldn't want to have a look at. that must have been really difficult because you're just starting your career just getting out there and you were also in the TA so it would have been quite fun being in the Territorial Army you probably had to give that up didn't you? I mean I went to university at at 17 and so was already in full-time work for I'd been in full-time work for sort of four or five years by the time this happened so I started off in local papers gone to local radio gone to regional radio and it was only when I went to the BBC so I was already on my fourth or fifth employer at the point at which I joined the TA so I didn't like obviously in the grand scheme of things I, I'd been in work four or five years. Um, but, but no, I, I mean, I was absolutely army barmy as well. I really, really wanted to be a war <laughs> correspondent. That's what I wanted to be. Uh, and I'd been out to, I'd already by that age been out to Kosovo to see some of the work that our troops had been doing there at the end of the war. Um, that's one of the reasons I joined the Territorial Army because I wanted to be able to understand the military side of things in order to be able to talk about it. So I was desperate to get back in. And I went back to training far, far too early after I broke my back and fell off the Pentlands on a night exercise and ended up back in A&E. Uh, and I, then I got the tap on the shoulder from the, the two IC at, at the training cadre, who took me aside and told me that I was <laughs> I was being discharged because I was an insurance risk. <laughs> Just so accident prone. That's the problem, isn't it? Well, do you know, I was, I was a bit annoyed at that because I was like, well, if I didn't sue you the bloody first time when there wasn't a medic, when there was 
you made me get up and walk to the ambulance and I could have had the deposit on a flat, thanks very much, out of the army, but I was so keen to get back in. I'm not about to sue you bloody now. So so I was. I have to say I, I, was, a, I was a bit narked about that. I was a little bit narked. And do you think the mental issues that you faced when you were at university and you found it very difficult and um, you got very depressed, didn't you? And it was the first time you'd really been away from home. Do you think that had more of an effect on your life then? Well, I, th- I, I do think that um, the period when I... I I mean, I, I did slightly struggle at university. Um, so, I, like I say, I went at 17. And I'd come from, a, a, you know, a, a school where, you know, it was, it was quite a big school. Um, and our year group, it just so happened, was a very big year group. So I started in first year at high school with 330 people in our year group, which is quite big. Um, and by the time we got to sixth year, which is our, our final year in Scotland, uh, there was 90 of us left of which not everybody went to university. So that shows you the sort of the attrition rate. So going to university was not the norm from from my background. And myself and my sister were the first in our own family and loads of my friends were the first generation of their family too to, to go to uni. And we'd gone from a place where um, the, the school that I was at was not a hugely academic school, but it was brilliant at supporting its pupils in any way that it could. So, and because it was a big school, there was loads of teachers. So you could always find one to help you. So if you wanted to start a debating society, you could do that. If you wanted, to, I... I wanted to be in a play and we didn't have a theatre group or anything like that so we found an English teacher that would help us with that if you played music or if you played sport you would be you know you would find a way in which the the teachers were great at at looking after the kind of whole kids realising that everybody was going to be academic so we'd had that kind of environment which although tough and although there was assaults in school teenage pregnancies drug abuse and all these other things that you get in lots of different areas there was also a real nurturing sense around the kids there that wanted to get on and wanted to learn and, and then to go to something as hugely as anonymous as as edinburgh university really big uni lots of uh students that come from other parts of the world particularly south of the border where they don't come until they're much older a levels is pitched at a higher level in scottish hires uh, a lot of them have gone off and done a gap year in tanzania rebuilding an orphanage for orangutans or whatever it is that you do you know they're all cutting about in gilets and driving VW Golfs and can't wait to get home to see their pony called Trumper. You know, it's just a different type of life. And uh, yeah, I was, I, was pretty, I was pretty intimidated and, uh, doubt, and had self-doubt for the first time. And it also just so happened that in my first year when I was feeling a wee bit lost, um, a guy from my village who's also, as it happened, been run over on my, he lived on my street, got run over on the same road a couple of years after I did, had damaged his, his, his legs and his ankles, um, not nearly as badly as I had. Um, he committed suicide. Um, and, you know, I, Martin and I weren't close. We weren't in the same year at school. We actually went to, to different high schools. But we had lots of friends in common. His dad had been my clarinet teacher, like, in that weird way that, that places are really small. Um and it just it really hit me and I, I don't know why I don't know whether it was survivor guilt or what but it, it just I just had this real sense that you know he hadn't been as, as badly injured and and now he was dead and I've been really badly injured and I didn't deserve to live and it was really destructive the first couple of years at uni were really really destructive. Do you think it was harder than the physical injuries that you had? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I've always been quite honest about it. Well, I, that's that's not true. Um, it had never really come up and I'd always expected to. And that was always the big fear when I was running for office. And then when I was running for the leadership of the, the, the Scottish Conservatives, I was always really worried that my depression would come back and I wouldn't be able to cope and I would let people down. 
And I've always found not letting people down is a much stronger driver for me than trying to make people proud. And they're very different things. So trying to not let people down is the main motivating factor in almost everything that I've ever done, actually, um, in a weird way. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When it came to, to kind of running for the Scottish Conservatives, I mean, I was probably the last chance of the party still existing. The way in which that leadership, we, I mean, we've been terrible in Scotland for 20 years. We'd underperformed. We were worse than relevance. We were a joke. There's more pandas in Scotland than our Tory MPs, all of that sort of thing. And, and the leadership election that I went for, I was running against the then party's deputy leader, whose pitch was that we should wind the party up, divorce from the UK party and start again as a centre, a separate centre-right party in Scotland because we were never going to succeed. And and if I had failed, that's exactly where we would have been. I was the last chance saloon. So there was a huge amount of pressure for somebody that had been in politics less than six months, professional politics less than six months, to do something that nobody else has managed to do. <laughs> uh, uh, otherwise, uh, against quite a lot of resistance, um, uh, you know, um, all but two of the the parliamentarians in the Scottish Parliament had voted for other candidates in that leadership election, so they didn't want me to be their leader. They all had more experience. So so the first couple of years were, were pretty tough in that respect. Um, and there was a huge amount of pressure. And, and also, um, I, I got in in the election in 2011 where the SNP got their majority for the first time and there was going to be a referendum on independence, which is something I cared deeply and passionately about, keeping the United Kingdom together. And if, and if I crumbled or if I didn't get our party up to play the part it needed to play, you know, we could lose the United Kingdom. That was not out with the bounds possibility. And that's that's quite high stakes. You know, that's that's global world order stuff. <laughs> that's that's actually quite big. Just going back to your experience at university, you were diagnosed with clinical depression, I think. Can you describe yes. what that felt like? Yeah, I mean, I... I, I... I wrote a book a couple of years ago where I talked about it and I've, I've done a lot of work with, with um, mental health charities in Scotland and I'd always said, look, I want to tell my story, but I kind of, I don't want to do it in an interview where then it gets twisted in the headline. I want to be able to lay it out my way. And, and actually I, I managed to put it in this book, um, which just so people don't think I'm a terrible narcissist, the book wasn't about me. Um, the publishers asked for me in the book as I talked about lots of different women who'd done lots of different things. Um, and the best way I could describe it is not the Churchill way of having a black dog follow you around, something that's just on your shoulder that you're aware of, that you're 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 up um that you you're kind of trying to outrun. Um 
when I had depression, when I when I was having a depressive episode, um, it, it felt like a a black blanket that smothers you, um, that's that's over your face that you can't fight your way out from under, um, and it's it's suffocating and, uh, and you you can't you can't fight your way free. So you're you're kind of you're on your back and it's it's on top of you and it's pressing you down. That's what it felt like to me. And how did you get the blanket off? I mean, how did you actually come out of the depression? Do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I I didn't have a a great experience. Um, basically, their kind of the, the way in which their their kind of health service worked is there was you know half a dozen GPs for twenty thousand students or whatever it was. So there there wasn't a huge amount of of kind of personalised care about it. It was it was pretty it it was pretty perfunctory and. You know, every time I went and said I've done this and cut myself here, and you know it's not better. They they just they gave me some antidepressants, and then every time I went back, they just doubled the dose and doubled the dose until I was on the maximum you could. And I have to be very careful about how I word this next part, but it um, it turns out that the um, medication that I was given, there have been a number of class actions around the world, um, where the company that makes it has settled out of court rather than go to court to lots of people that say that one of its main side effects is uh is suicidal thoughts um exacerbation of anxiety of things like uh hallucinations one of the things that i had was that i had very very vivid dreams and i would wake up and i wouldn't know what was real and what was in a what was real and what wasn't real within that dream within that dream context and it did i mean i i i wondered there were times where i was like is this what madness is i had a very very bad reaction to 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 my drugs and i would be so careful about how i say the next part which is i found that giving them up was the best thing for me i do not advise that for anybody else i advise people we've come a long way in the the sort of 20 some years since i was first diagnosed with this and um, speak to your medical professionals have these conversations I ended up throwing mine away, which I would never, t- I would never advise people to do. But uh, I did that and started kind of almost rebuilding myself. So I uh, left university, moved back in my parents' house for a short time, got a job, started building myself up, cut out drinking, started exercising more, went back to my church, uh, started just rebuilding myself and rebuilding my own resilience. And having to learn the things that work for me, which was about trying to keep more regular hours, trying to have routine, making sure I slept better. Because, I, I mean, I spent a whole term at uni living nocturnally. Right. Did you self-harm a lot during that period? Not a lot, but I did self-harm. But your parents must have been devastated because it's so difficult when your child's already gone through a trauma and then they come home and they're... they're... They're so angst and They must have been so proud of you being at university. It must have been very hard to come back again. I think the difficulty for them was I didn't tell them till long after it was finished. I mean, it's it's amazing how good you get at covering up stuff. Long sleeves and, you know, all of these other things. I mean, it was my, my arms and my stomach that I targeted when I was self-harming. And these are areas that, that you can cover up. And... My parents didn't know. I mean, they could obviously tell I probably wasn't as chirpy and all the rest of it, although I would put on a show for them any weekend that I went home, but I was living away from home. I wanted to protect them from it, so I didn't tell them until until long after. And how do you feel about the self-harm scars now compared to the scars from your accident? Yeah, I mean, 
you know, I, I think it's funny. I had a, I had a previous partner who um, had a few tattoos and wanted to get more. And I'm, I've always been kind of a, a bit anti them uh, on the grounds that, you know, I've, I've got permanently marked skin, um, not through choice. <laughs> Why would you do it through choice? Um, so, so yeah, so I don't have any tats, let's put it that way. But, um, you know, I think I'm not, I don't like them, but I can't get rid of them. And when you said that you didn't think you could become Prime Minister because you thought that mentally you may not be strong enough, to everyone else you seem an incredibly no, 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 strong no, no, personality. No, 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 I, I, I said I would never want to be Prime Minister because I value my family and my mental health too much. I mean, it's a hellish job. Have you looked at it? <laughs> Like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky in that I've been allowed through the doors at number 10 and, and have seen people in the job do the job. And it just must be the loneliest place in the world. And, you know, I, I, you know, I, I think that there have been people that are more or less suited to it and that have the skills and capacity and you need to, you need to work with lots of people to get things done. But um, in terms of would I want that life for myself? Would I want that life for my son? Would I want that life for my partner? No, thank you. <laughs> awful, awful. Do you think sometimes that politicians are too scared to admit their vulnerability? Yes, but I, I absolutely understand why. Because it, it hangs around, um, you know, and, and there is a question mark. And And if, for example, if I ever did go for another big job um at some point in the future don't think for one second that having had and having talked about having a history of mental ill health wouldn't there wouldn't be a nod and a wink in some of the attacks on me of course there would be but i think i think talking out and and people like myself uh, anders for rasmussen the the danish prime minister and others talking about this does make it easier and and I wish that one of the reasons that I have spoken about this is because I wish when I had been 18 when this first happened to me that I had seen sports stars and Prince Harry and people in politics and and people in in big jobs talking about this because I honestly thought that that was my chance at life over you know this is something that would dog me and stay with me and it would inhibit me and it would stop me that it was some form of barrier Uh, and it's not, it, and it's it's also not something that's either, you know, it's it's not like catching an infection that you then cure yourself of. It's something that you manage. It's something that you continue to manage, and you will always manage, and I will always manage. Um, and and I think that having had people talk about that at the time would have been so much better about some of the anxieties that I had of what could I usefully do in this world, what possible career trajectory could I have, what. You know, any of that sort of stuff would have been so much easier. And I think the more people talk about it, the the, the less it becomes ammunition because, you, you know, four in ten of us will have, a, you know, a, a mild to moderate depressive episode at some point in our life. You talk in your book about how you have to adapt to overcome. What does that mean for you? Well, it means that when I see stuff coming, I, I put in place coping mechanisms. So so actually, lockdown has been a really good example of that. So there was a good chance that being confined to the house, uh, not being able to, to kind of go and do work. Um, I'm, I'm like a Labrador. I need to let off my leash at least once a day. I'm very hyperactive. Um, having like external pressures, worries, anxieties... You know, this this would be a classic case where I would worry that I'm I might find myself starting to slip. 
So um, at the start of lockdown, you know, I've, I've been really, really strict about trying to go to bed at the same time every night. So I'm not stretching it into the evenings. I, um, with Finn, my partner and I take it in turns anyway. So one of us is up at any time between sort of half four and 6.15, which is his waking hours. And, <laughs> and then, But then on the days that we're not it, um, making sure that we're, we're, we're up by seven every day and that we're, we're doing stuff before work with him, with, you know, walking the dog, etc. Um, in terms of the, the hour that, that we were allowed out of the house for the period that we're only allowed out once a day, make sure that I'm using that for exercise. In terms of, I've, I've basically cut out booze pretty much the whole of lockdown. Uh, I, I I have quite a, um obsessive uh, element to myself sometimes. So myself and uh, a friend of mine started a, a competition, a kind of fitness weight lossy competition thing, which is great because it's allowed me to stress over things like um, I've got apps and things that do calorie counting and uh, fat intake and protein intake and all this sort of stuff. So I've had like this little compartment that I've 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 um that I've sectioned off that I've been able to like have my obsessive side work on. Has your religion helped you at all, do you think, over the years? Is that something that's that you've had since childhood and has always been there? Yeah, it's it has. Um, it's also something that I find I am closer to and further from at different times in my life. It's not a constant with me. Well, in that, um, my belief in God is, is constant. Um, my attendance at church sometimes is patchy, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> but yeah, and, and sometimes... Sometimes I, I have felt further from, from from God, and and that has oftentimes been at times where I've been having a difficult time. So, um, when I was depressed as well, I I, I wasn't out. I, I didn't I didn't really know I was gay, but I thought I might be. Um, and you know I I know enough about my scriptures to know what Paul says to all his various churches around the the globe about, uh, people like me being up there with, uh thieves and adulterers and homosexual offenders which is the the version of the bible the new international version version is 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 what it's called so you know that's not been great and it's been something that i've had to i've had to work through um and have i think largely and i, and I think actually my church the church of scotland has come a really long way um in terms of of its accessibility and its nurturing of of gay members of their congregation um and one thing that's, that's always annoyed me um, when i first started at the bbc i was a, a booker for for a radio program and every time there was a we needed two sides of a debate on any kind of gay advancement it was always like phone the church and actually the venn diagram of people who happen to have faith and who also happen to be gay there's quite a big crossover it's not like they're completely separate tribes so um so yeah so 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 yeah I guess, I guess, I don't feel like a very good Christian at the moment, but then maybe it's because these calls have been taken out of the church for, for several months. At the beginning, when, when you started going into politics, everyone always called you as the sort of gay, kickboxing religious, um, army, BBC, that you seem to cross every single barrier. You were they were both on the left, both on the right. Culturally, no one could actually pin you down anymore, could they? And was that something that you wanted? Well, I just wanted to own my own adjectives, to be honest with you. Um, because, like I say, I, I my first day in Parliament, my party leader resigned. And I had no intention of going for the party leadership because I wanted to kind of learn my trade on the back benches. And... The way it worked out, it, it became apparent that the chap that wanted to 
wind the party up and start again was going to win if somebody didn't step forward and, and I, I chose to do so and you know it really annoyed me there was four people in that leadership election and every single one of them was defined by their job apart from me so it was deputy leader x uh, transport spokesman y committee convener z and lesbian kickboxer <laughs> davidson and it, you know i was so angry that um but simultaneously uh, i mean i was the first openly gay elected parliamentarian for the Conservatives in Scotland. But it's because you were such ever. an unusual Conservative. So I wasn't just MSP, that was MP, MEP. So in 2011, the first openly gay elected for the Tories in Scotland anywhere. You know, that's quite a big thing uh, to kind of overcome. And and also, you don't want to deny it. I've, I've never wanted... I wanted it to be normal. I wanted it to not be the one thing that people knew about me. I didn't want to be the gay politician. But I also wasn't about to tell people in interviews that they couldn't ask me about it. I wasn't going to hide it. I wasn't going to go back into the closet because that doesn't actually help anyone else coming up behind. And I think we've all got a duty to make it just that little bit easier for those who come after. say now to your five-year-old self if you were going back when you were lying in that ambulance and you were looking at your mother and you must have just felt absolutely wretched is there anything you'd want to say now um I don't know I think I've done all right so probably just doing what I did would be fine but when you're five you've got no concept of future or time or anything like that so it was always just doing the next thing and doing the next thing and I think if if anybody had told me at the age of five that, you know, you're not going to walk for however many months it is and you're going to have to, you know, have a, you know, be pushed around in a a, a World War One spinal carriage and then, you know, your mum's going to have to find an oversized buggy and get shouted at in the street by people because that child should be walking by now, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I think that would have made it harder, not easier. So it's it's probably probably better not to know. <laughs> Sorry, is that, a, is that a total abdication of responsibility there? <laughs> What about to your 17-year-old self? Yeah. yeah. What would you say now, going back to that oh, first day? Oh, no, I would want to say a lot to, to my 17-year-old self. I think the thing that I would want to say most of all is don't confuse knowledge with intelligence. Don't confuse uh, loudness and brashness and confidence with ability. Uh, and don't worry about other people like just you just play your own furrow because I, I think all of those things that came together I think it, it really was the whole utter intimidation by all of these 22 year olds ya 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 fa fa faing about just being so composed and so together and just so strident in their rightness about everything and do you know what they probably weren't any smarter than me and I don't think that they probably wear any together any more together than me they just put on a damn good show and that seems like an effort do you know just just be kinder to yourself I think I would probably tell myself and what about at 25 when you're in the hospital in Salisbury <laughs> what would you say there would you say <laughs> no do you know I it, it this sounds really odd but I don't have that as a negative experience weirdly I really don't and it, it's funny because I and this, and this shows you how much physical stuff is is separate for me than than, than mental stuff. Is that uh, I was signed off by my consultant for 
three months and I went and I begged my GP to write me a note to allow me to go back to work uh, two and a half weeks after I broke my back in three places because I was so worried that sitting around the house watching uh you know i don't know bargain hunt would rot my brain quicker than heroin and my depression would come back that i would rather go into work um than take the time off to heal uh and i had to grab one of my bosses that was a soft touch and take this letter and say look i will get a taxi to and from i won't drive i will do desk-based work but i have i have to come into work i have to work um and that's because my fear of hurting my back like I was like I say I was I was I was in this back brace anyway so I was I was generally quite enclosed but my fear of of further damaging myself or you know it taking longer to heal was nothing as to not wanting to go back to where I'd been and and the the division is massive um and it just so happened that there was an enormous gas explosion in Glasgow about the week after I went back to work so despite all of my protestations to my doctor that I would sit at a nice desk and basically be a typist for 3 months uh, I was sent sent out with a camera crew to stand in front of a collapsed building for 8 hours and that hurts I have to say uh, that that really was quite sore but I'd still rather have done that than be sat in the house I I like working I've always liked working and I've always done my job, I've always done stuff around it, whether that's volunteering or the TA or whatever. I've always done loads of things. I just, I don't like stopping. Do you think in some ways you kind of get a strength from overcoming adversity that you know you can get through it? Well, I think, you know, I think what I've noticed latterly is that I am less risk averse to doing things where there's a chance something might go wrong and I might get hurt than my partner who's never broken a bone and never been in hospital. So I think she's more frightened of what a broken bone feels like than I am because I think over the years I've broken about 12 or 13. So I kind of just know and that it's okay. Like, it's not nice. I wouldn't recommend it. But, like, it's you can do that and it's it's still still okay. Do you think you gained anything from your traumas? Um, I I think possibly a, a, a sort of resilience or a individual tenacity possibly I think I think the ability to um make myself do things when I'm scared uh or sore um or nervous about something I, I can I can absolutely push through things out and I think I don't know whether that's something I, I would have had anyway or whether it's something that was developed because I would make myself do physiotherapy even when I was screaming in pain um, because I wanted to learn how to walk again. Uh, I, I, I don't know, but these are qualities that I have uh, and that I've learned to control in many ways. Um, and I think part of that learning curve, you know, that's obviously been part of it. So maybe I've learned it earlier than other people might. And what do you want to do next? I want more babies. <laughs> oh, do you? How many? <laughs> I think one. Well, to be honest, my partner and I have always been pretty, uh, pretty open about the fact that we would like um, more than one child. Although TikTok getting a bit on now. Ruth Davidson, thank you very much for doing that interview. It was really extraordinary. And I mean, not just one trauma, but three traumas, really. Well, thank you very much for chatting to me today. Past Imperfect was presented by me, Rachel Sylvester. And me, Alice Thompson. It was produced by Lucy Ditchmond. The executive producer was Matt Hall. It was a Wireless Studios production. You can hear Past Imperfect on Times Radio, 
and download the podcast from Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.